This episode is all about you, listeners, and we'll be tackling some of your meatiest questions. We've had a few come in of late on how to get the best start on the property ladder and then build a portfolio in the current lending environment. And we've been asked to look back in time at our own decisions. Would we re-engineer our choices through the lens of hindsight? What have we learnt the hard way so that you, by listening here now, can learn the easy way? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au All right, our first question is from Mike Orford. I'll read it and then we'll kick off with some answers, okay? He's uh, in my mid-20s with a negatively geared investment property. He's bought a post-war two-bed flat in inner Melbourne and am now looking at getting something for himself to live in. Now, in episode 127, he refers to, which is great. Thank you very much for listening to lots of episodes. Uh, You talked about the importance of finding properties with good capital growth potential while you're young and possibly prioritising capital growth over yield. I wouldn't say possibly, I'd say definitely, but anyway. I've approached the bank bank to look at what they could lend me for my second property, but I'm finding that having a negatively geared investment is impacting on my ability to service a larger loan despite having good equity in my existing property. What do you suggest is the best way to balance capital growth with yield to maintain good loan serviceability when building a property portfolio? Over to you, Chris. I love this question um, because it takes, you know, I think that someone's really thinking about it and you're in your mid-20s here, Mike, and you're really thinking long-term. You're really, you know, you're planning it out. You've probably done a bit of research because you've gone and bought an older flat. Um, in Melbourne and so you've probably gone down a self-education journey um, you know so that's really good you're even listening to us so you're educating um, etc and you're also identifying the gaps between yield and capital growth and they're different things and they they mean different um, they'll get you different results so there's lots to love in the question here I think the problem with this question though is there's a myth that the thing that's holding you back here is the negatively geared investment property rather than potentially it being a positively geared investment property. And the truth is rent doesn't make a big difference to how much money you can borrow for your loan. The thing that's actually holding you back here, Mike, is just your income. And it's just, your, and maybe it's because you haven't mentioned a part, partner in here. Um, you may be married, you may have a partner, but if you don't have a partner, um, it's just tough when you're trying to borrow on one income the amount of money that you can borrow is is just nowhere near as much as if, say, a couple went to um, borrow. Just because double incomes, it really increases your borrowing capacity. So I'd say that's the first thing. The second thing is you have said that you've gone to the bank, and this isn't a broker versus bank um, sort of uh, pitch from me, but, you know, every bank lends different amounts of money. 
to, based on your situation. So if you walked into 10 different banks, not that you can walk into all the good ones because a lot of them are online, but if you got 10 different proposals from 10 different banks, they would all lend you a different amount. Now, I have no idea what banks you walked into. If you walked into, say, ANZ, or I know there's only a couple of ways you can walk into ING, but um, yeah, you said you approached, but let's just say you did that. They would lend you different amounts because those banks traditionally are more conservative than, say, a CBA or a Macquarie or a Resimac, et cetera. So that's the second issue here is we don't know if you've just gone to a really conservative bank. Um, the final bit is um, how do you balance good growth, capital growth with yield to maintain good loan serviceability? The reality is even if you get a higher rent, let's say um, it's a million-dollar property. I'm just using that for round terms. And the difference between, say, getting $800 a week rent and $600 a week rent, you would say that's $200 a week. So you think that's a lot of money, right? So that what happens is that $200 a week gets added onto your income. Um, so that's $10,000 a year. But what the bank then does is haircuts that, usually by 20 or 25%. So that's now down to $8,000 a year um, of extra income, right? Now, you can borrow six times $8,000. So that extra $200 a week, is really only going to increase your borrowing capacity 50 grand. So it doesn't really impact your borrowing capacity how much the rent is. And what really drives your borrowing capacity is your personal income because you could own earn and get a pay rise of $10,000 and that would dwarf that $50,000 anyway. So the best way, to, the whole myth around building portfolios is that you can keep buying positively geared cash flow properties and that you can keep on building bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, that was the case potentially in 2014 when you could basically, uh, I guess, game the servicing calculators of many different banks. You could fix your loans, you could spread your debts, and you could get maybe 10, 12 multiples times your salary. That, that just doesn't exist anymore. Lots of legislation has stopped that. So I know I've gone on a big rant here around, but there's there hopefully some identified some key issues. The reality is your final answer to the question the question is just go for capital growth. The reality is you're young, you're in your mid-20s. What you're trying to do is build an asset base so at some point when you want to live off that asset base, you can flip it to income. And so then, but the reality is if you bought lots of growth properties, those the income on growth properties usually goes up. The rent does because every year there's not that many for rent and over time the rents will go up as well. So it might not start off at a great yield, but good properties, the yield actually increases doesn't decrease. So hopefully that helps. What do you think, Veronica? <laughs> well, um, and look, this is all really good stuff because, of course, you know, there's this idea and there is a big myth out there about, you know, you've got to buy the first one, then you've got to get the get the growth, the equity growth and that, and then you can basically get the next one for yield so that that increases your serviceability. And, and I think it's good to blow that myth out of the water. And because a lot of people that have chased that methodology have got stuck, they've got stuck owning really crap assets that actually have gone backwards in value or, or not done anything. And then, and then undoes the whole premise of it because then you're not getting any equity growth and, and you need that really to, to, um, to make it all yep. work. So a couple of things that I just wondered too, I just thought we should probably have a quick chat about the idea of um, rent vesting for first home buyers, because obviously yes. um, that is, you know, that's really where we're at here that, that um, Mike has obviously decided his first property and good on you, by the way, mid twenties owning a property, yeah. um, you know, 
he's decided that his first property is not going to be the one he lives in. And so he's then got into the market and he's bought a sort of post-war, too bad, flat, good area in a Melbourne, I'm presuming, you know. So, um, you know, he's looked at some fundamentals there to buy that property, which is great. But yeah. the problem with rent vesting is that, you know, if in the foreseeable future you're going to be in a better situation financially to get a bigger loan and potentially buy yep. a home to live in in the area you want to be in, you can shoot yourself in the foot by buying the minute you can buy. And I think this is probably maybe a good example of that, that now he's going to have to wait even longer to live in his own home because he has bought this. Now, long-term, 20, 30, 40 years down the track, he might look back and say, it doesn't matter. That that, that time meant nothing because I bought yeah. a good asset and I held on to it and it's done its job. But but in these early years, I think that if you do have that potential to have an increase in salary um, or if you, you potential to partner up and buy with a partner, um, you know, that idea of rent vesting can lock you into that path only for a lot longer than you might otherwise want. Yeah, 100%. I think the other thing here is, and I might, I don't like to, you know, kill all apartments in Melbourne, but I just think that Melbourne and Brisbane have had a bit of an apartment boom um, and and they have no plans to stop that because of being a very flat city. Um, and, you know, there's just going to be lots and lots more apartments. You're just going to see it continually hit the Melbourne market and that's why you see there's a huge gap between houses um, and three beds in Melbourne how they're performed versus apartments whereas in Sydney you know because they haven't been able to build fast enough the apartments and there's limited a supply of good apartments in really premium areas and the houses are more expensive the apartments have performed much better whereas the same as Brisbane apartments gone sideways so I'd say that's probably even though you've gone down a more of an established older block Melbourne just generally is a much bigger supply impact of new apartments than, say, you know, Sydney has. So I think that's probably the first thing. I've got a client literally this week who came to me and a little bit different to you, Mike, maybe maybe five years older, um, but they had they had two apartments, one or two bed, one or one bed in Melbourne, and it's a couple. So it could be you in a, a couple of years, to be honest, and they're a couple. And I said, look, I always want to ask because it's such an important part to the property decision is, you know, whether you're thinking about having kids, right? And, you know, new couples, it's always a little bit of a, a tricky question to ask when you've only known someone for a couple of minutes, but it's <laughs> such an important thing to discuss. And they're like, you know, I could see, sense it here is a little bit like, oh, you know, it's coming five years sort of thing. And I could say she was like, definite. Yep. No, we're definitely having kids. Um, and what they wanted to do was go straight down another apartment. They had it in their head, set in stone. We're going to get our third property um, and we're going to buy another two-bedroom apartment. And what they didn't want to sort of consider is the opportunity cost of that because they're telling me in five years' time they want they want to live in the inner north of Melbourne, they want to start a family, and they don't want to live in an apartment. And on the other side is they want to just keep going down this accumulation strategy about quantity of properties just so they can, and and they hadn't really dealt with this sort of bus that's going to hit them in five years' time. They're going to say, we really want a house. And then they go look at their servicing, they look at their properties and go, how are we going to afford it? Well, we'll have to sell something. Okay, well, what will we sell? We'll just sell, well, we'll sell the best one because that's got the cash in and then we'll hold on to the, the one of them wasn't very good. And then the other one that we just bought, maybe we can't keep that. So that's kind of what I could see happening here. What I'd probably do, Mark, is start thinking through where do you want to live long-term, you know, um, where if, if you did, say, meet someone and you wanted a family, not saying everyone wants that, but if you did want that, um, 
you know, w- w- would that be a good investment? So maybe you're better off instead of shifting into try buy another property, maybe you're actually better to shift into one actually quality property. Um, the final thing is, you, you know, you can borrow a lot more money when you're living at home. So I don't know if you've you're moved out um, and you're renting somewhere, but you may be paying a lot of rent. Um, so maybe reducing your rent can also increase your serviceability as well. So I'm not saying you should move home and then move straight back out and gain the system, but sometimes we find clients are paying, you know, five hundred dollars a week to live by themselves, but they were paying three hundred dollars a week. It would change as well. So that's probably another idea for you, Mike. Um, and before we get on to our next question, actually, just something just occurred to me, and that was that I can I could imagine. Um, a lot of people would be in this situation. They might be rent vesting. They might have bought the first apartment. Maybe it's a two-bedroom apartment. They might be in Mike's position and say, right, I want to buy a home now. Oh, dear, I've got a bit of an issue. I can't borrow enough money to buy the home that I want. Yeah. Oh, but I can borrow enough to buy a one-bedroom apartment and I can just add to my portfolio instead. And that is a really dangerous thing to do. And I think, too, at the moment, one-bedroom apartments are on the nose, so um, wouldn't be doing that. But, but I can definitely understand how that the logic, it would seem logical to do that, but actually would be the really bad idea in terms of long-term strategy. I just want to throw add one final point to sort of uh, whatever the word is, concur or hear, hear you. Um, <laughs> what I do see is, um, you know, clients that are, say, young couples and um, they're doing quite well for themselves. They're investing in their career. Like they've, they're passionate. They're doing whatever it is, right? And they're starting to earn good money. Um, they've probably focused on, you know, work hard, play hard. So they've gone and you know, traveled and, you know, do all the things that you want to do in your 20s. And they get to say, you know, around 30, let's say, and they're like, right, let's knuckle down. Let's start saving. Let's let's take advantage of all this sort of money that we're earning. Let's not just go and, uh, and spend it all, basically. And what they'll do is they'll go and save really quickly because they've got the capacity to do it and they haven't got kids and a mortgage. And so they, they all of a sudden they go to 100 grand, right? And that 100 grand starting to burn in their pocket because they've generally not been great with money because they've spent it all. And so now they're like, I've got to spend this money. I can't just leave it in the bank. I've just got to go and invest. And what they'll do is they'll go out and buy an investment property. And because they're on great incomes, they've got the capacity to go and buy really a quality asset if they just wait. But what they'll do is they'll go and say, well, based on hundred grand, we want a 20% deposit. Let's go buy something at 400. And um, what they'll do is they'll go and find something at 400. It'll be rural. It'll be, you know, not a great asset. They'll get targeted by a spruker um, and they'll just focus on a, getting an asset so they can tick that box and so they can feel good that they've got an investment property and completely ignore whether it's a good asset for them long term just so they can get rid of that pain of that 100 grand just sitting in the bank account because <laughs> the parent society will be telling them to invest. So I just, it's a really good point, Veronica, you say that because I do see that where potentially you're just better off waiting another year. You know, you've already saved a hundred grand in a year. Why don't you just wait another year, you know, um, and then get one great asset. Yes. Right. Now it sort of leads on to our question from Ken Ewan. Uh, and I love his intro here. I've got to say it. Thanks for changing my life with the information you've shared in your podcast. And I'm, that's, that's fabulous. You know, I look like a proud mama. Um, no, I've been a long time listener, but I wish there, I wish I was there from the very beginning. It's definitely changed the direction of my partner and I's life, my life. Um, my partner and I each have incomes around ninety to ninety-five thousand dollars, and we have a combined savings of one hundred fifty thousand. Sort of sounds like, a, you know, along those lines, we are looking to purchase our first property mm. at the five fifty to six hundred thousand dollar mark. Our first property will be rented out for the first few years, and then we will move into it. The second property we plan to buy, I love this, you know 
planning on buying a second property, uh, will be an investment property. Now we have the option of using one of our parents' home as a guarantor loan. The parents' house is valued at 450000 Our thinking is that we should use the guarantor as our deposit and leave our cash aside for the offset account. We intend to use that cash to purchase our next investment property. We can already hear the alarms ringing and I'm not even a mortgage broker or financial planner. Um, so when the time suits in a few years, do you guys think this is a good strategy or is it better to use some of our savings as a deposit to reduce the loan amount or perhaps not even use the guarantor loan at all considering we would have enough of the deposit on our own? Would love your input on this and I've tried searching the web for answers but haven't had any luck. Now, a question to you, Chris, on this one. If he was your client, right, as, a, oh. as an investment savvy mortgage broker and obviously with a background in financial planning, you'd be able to answer this, wouldn't you? But a lot of mortgage brokers probably wouldn't be able to answer this. So, um, and this is why we always uh, yeah. an investment savvy broker, but go for it. <laughs> You're uh, jumping at the bit. So there's, there's lots of love about sort of this and, I, and thank you for the, the you know the very kind comments at the start saying we change your life and that's what we're trying to do with this podcast so you know is help people and you know this is a way of us helping thousands of people so we really love it i think the the things that i guess um we love guarantor loans if you can get over all the hurdles to make sure that it's the best thing for you whoever you're getting the guarantor from and it's not something that you, even if you can get access to it you should do it there's lots you need to think about from the person providing the guarantor, whether you should actually even consider even asking them. The first thing is you just really understand where are they going, what stage of life are they at, what type of property is that. Um, you know, if they're a, if they're a uh, husband, your mum and dad, let's say, right, and they're going to retirement, are they going to keep living in that property through retirement, um, or they want to downsize, or they want to move? Because if they do, that potentially will affect your guarantor loan. You know, do they want to use that equity themselves? Um, they may, you know, want to use that equity and buy themselves an investment property or, you know, even just have it as a buffer for themselves. You can't you reduce their buffer. So you need well, to understand truly. What if you and your yep. partner break up and the yep. yeah, it's parents, a, your parents. Very good one. Who's guarantoring your property. It's a very, it's a very good one because relationships aren't as uh, certain as we uh, sometimes believe. Um, and so you're right, and things happen, right? And so we've had clients in this situation, and this is, is the real risk of guarantor loan. So you've kind of hit the nail on the head, Veronica. Um, the risk is that, you know, something happens in a couple of years' time, you want to get out of the guarantor loan, and the property that you purchased wasn't the greatest of properties, um, and that property doesn't go up, it potentially goes down. And so not only have you paid stamp duty, selling costs, because you have to sell it because you get out of the relationship, um, and you can't service it on your own, uh, then you have a shortfall. Um, and in this situation, you've got your 150 grand. So if you had 50 grand, um, you know, I'd be kind of saying, well, I don't know if this is a good idea, right? You're kind of leveraging your parents and taking all the risk. They're taking all the risk and you're just putting in. Um, but because you've got 150, that's going to potentially cover a lot of the what you would need to pay that loan down um, if you decide to get out of the guarantor to pay it down to 80%. So I'm a bit more comfortable, but if the property value fell, then you'd have to sell the property, right? And so it's not a, a risk-free strategy. So I guess if you can get through the guarantor loan, and a big thing is if you've got brothers and sisters, it's one question I always ask, you know, what are they, what's their situation? Are they also going to want to use the guarantor? Um, then you get a Christmas party a year later and it's like, oh, mum let you use that guarantor and I didn't get it and all that sort of stuff. And then you get this family sort of... Um, battle over just the parents trying to help one child and it's all about fairness and all that sort of stuff so 
that's just something issue that I, I do see. I always want to know what the brothers and sisters are doing. So let's say it's great for the parents. They're not bothered. They can help you. Brothers and sisters aren't bothered. They're at a stage of life. I would actually potentially consider using the guarantor um, because it's a massive win for the children because what you could do is borrow the full purchase price plus stamp duty and then put your $150,000 into the offset account. And if you can do that and you're disciplined with your money and we don't, you've saved 150 grand. Now, I don't know if you've saved that yourself or it's been inheritance from someone or, you know, or whatever, right? But if you've been able to save and you're good with your money, then what you would do in that situation is borrow the full purchase price plus the stamp duty, put your 150 in the offset and then have a plan. This is the key with your parents and your partner, have it written down how you're going to get out of that guarantor and, and that you're planning on getting out of it. And the two ways you can do it is one, you save really hard to make sure you've got enough cash to pay that property down to 80% at any point in time. And two, buy a really good property. Um, because if you buy a good property and you don't buy a poor asset, you're minimizing the risk for you, but also minimizing the risk for your parents. And this is why I'll never do a guarantor loan on something that I think is a poor asset. Like I'd never let a client do this on a, a new apartment because I just think you're risking your parents, not your um, think, uh, your own cash. So that's probably the thing. It is a good idea for you, it is a, but is it a great idea for your parents, let's say? Um, your other question there around using the cash for an investment property, um, what you're doing here is you're potentially buying your future home and then you want to use cash to buy an investment property. And what you're actually doing is paying down an investment property loan and not paying off your home loan. So from a tax point of view, um, you, you're setting it up the wrong way. You're paying off investment debt and keeping high owner-occupied debt. What you'd actually be better off doing is buying a great asset. Um, I'd probably move into it so it grows for you tax-free. So get it owner-occupied. Um, and I'd also buy the asset that you'd be comfortable to move into in the future, which is kind of what you've alluded to. Um, spend money on that place, renovate it, you know, add value to it because that's going to protect you anyway. So some of your 150 is I'd be saying, what can we do to get good bang for buck? You know, paint it, floors, things that if we had to sell it at any point, we'd get, you know, a good return on that money. So that will also build equity. And then once you've got enough equity in that property, um, then I'd go and consider buying an investment property. Um, so it's, it's going to take time. I wouldn't just rush buying that investment property. So hopefully that's enough for you to sort of digest there, Ken. Um, but yeah, there's lots to it and you just got to be really careful you get the sequence right. Absolutely. One thing I would also add to that is that, um, you know, you're looking at purchasing your first probably around the 500 and 600K mark. Now, I mm. wonder whether or not you had the capacity to actually buy a more expensive property for your first home. And I'm not suggesting you should. I'm just wondering whether you are limiting your budget, your purchasing budget, because you're thinking about how much you're going to need free to buy the second investment property. Because the problem with that, there's a lot of problems in that. One is it's all good to think I'm going to buy an investment property down the track, but really we need to focus 100% of our energy and our focus on buying the best possible asset you can buy one at a time. Um, and if you scrimp on this one or you buy a C or a B or C grade property when you could buy a better 
quality property because you're trying to save and keep some capacity free for an investment down the track, then you're actually going to hamstring your ability to grow value, grow wealth. Um, and also potentially you'd be buying a sort of property that you might not really want to live in for, for a longer term anyway. So I would actually, I would actually not focus attention on the second property right now. I'd be focusing on buying the best possible asset, the best possible home for now. And you said you're going to rent it out for a few years and then move into it. So it's got to, you've got to be thinking, okay, well, if, if it's going to be rented out by somebody else for a few years, I'm not going to move into it for a few years. Will that be enough? Will it be big enough for my circumstances then? You know, we talk about the, are you going to have kids, all that sort of stuff. Will that property accommodate a growing family, if that's, my, if that's your plan, you know, up to 10 years, really? And because then at some point in that, home ownership journey you can then revisit and say right how much has it grown in value because you bought a good asset remember we said the quality of the asset is really important you bought a crap asset that might not have grown in value and that will hamstring your your ability to buy a second property anyway so you're always better off to have one fantastic asset and then when you get that sorted out, you're comfortable living there, you know that you've got longevity there and, and you can you can keep it and afford it and all that sort of stuff and you're building equity in it, then you can, and that's where the, the loan structuring and obviously getting really good advice around the actual structuring and offset account, all that sort of stuff to give you flexibility down the track because all that's about is giving you options. But the best option is to have the best asset. And so I just want to really say to you, forget the second property for now. The structuring is what you need in mind for the second property, not the dollars, none of that stuff. You need to focus on maximising your opportunity to buy a really good asset now. Yeah, so my neck is sore because uh, I've been nodding away. Um, 100%, that was the second part of this question that I didn't even talk about, right? Mm. I 100% with you, agree with you, Veronica. I actually think when I read that, I was like, okay, so you're earning uh, you know, 200 grand, let's say, um, so you could probably borrow low one millions. You're kind of saying I want to potentially buy something at five fifty, six hundred. I've got a client at the moment who is actually probably in a very similar situation, very similar incomes, um, probably more savings, but that's okay. Um, and they want to buy something at a similar purchase price. And I had a really long conversation with them um, because I can feel how they're conservative sort of people, um, and they want to feel comfortable. I don't want to lose my lifestyle, etc. Um, but what I'm saying is that what you're trying to do is, is you're buying your future lifestyle, right? You're buying what you're going to want in five years' time. And, you know, their trajectory in terms of their incomes is quite strong. Um, I don't know about you, Ken, but, you know, there might be some pay rises in the future. And so what feels unaffordable today can very quickly feel affordable in the future. So that's – and so what you did, you're being very conservative, what suits what your life is today, and you want to be conservative. But then in five years' time, you're like, wow, that was way over-conservative. Um, and then you – so that's the first thing I can kind of see happening here. The second thing is with this other client is why I was potentially saying spend more. And it's very, you know, people think that from a mortgage broker because they can get paid more. Like we don't think like that at all ever. Um, but the reality is where they wanted to buy and what they wanted to spend was pushing them to the C's and the D's in those suburbs. And so they were getting the bottom end and, you know, something compromised in those suburbs. Whereas if they spent a little bit more, and we're only talking maybe a hundred, maybe 150,000. I know that's a lot of money, but a little bit more, you know, spend, instead of buying something at 700, maybe buy something at 850, they shifted the dial and they started getting the A-grade properties. They started getting better streets, more lands, more desirable locations um, of the suburb, um, bigger properties that you can renovate. 
And so it feels like 150 grand more, but I reckon when you come back in five years' time, that gap's going to get bigger on them yeah. um, because the better properties in that suburb is going to grow on them. And if they go, oh, actually, we're living in this suburb, it's lovely, but oh, God, I wish we didn't live on a main road or God, I wish we lived a little bit closer to the water because it was down sort of in an area where water's very important. Um, it's too late. You've, you've just you've shot yourself in the foot. That growth on that property is under the market. And now you have to go and pay selling costs and buy costs again. Um, and then you have to potentially pay the gap on the growth, et cetera. So 100% agree with Veronica. I'd be really questioning whether that first property you're just being conservative on mm. and I'd be going and buying something you can grow into as a couple um, and something that's a really good investment that's going to grow for you. And then it's much better to have one great property at, say, a million dollars rather than two properties at 500000 taking the same amount of risk from a market loan point of view, um, but you're not going to get the same results, especially because your home grows tax-free. So, um, yeah, very good point as well, Veronica. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of people do think that the the risk is in the borrowing, the amount of money borrowed rather than the actual asset. And, you know, obviously borrowing a lot of money is risky, no doubt about it, but that's exactly why the quality of the asset needs to be the focus. Um, and you can spend more money on a better asset and that's a lot less risky than spending less money on a crap asset. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Now, we've got another question here, and this one is specifically for you, Chris. It's from Paul Holland. Now, in one of your recent podcasts, you mentioned Chris had bought a property in February and will give us an update about how he was feeling about the investment in 12 months or so. Now, we're recording this in October, so we're a little bit (laughs) short on February. Uh, Any chance of bringing that forward, asks Paul. We bought in March. They bought in March. uh, And with the impact of COVID, they're obviously feeling, well, they said he's feeling quite comfortable with their investment but we're interested to know how comfortable you were, Chris, and how closely you're watching the market. And I'm not sure if Paul bought in the same area as you or not, but uh, far away, yeah. how are you feeling? How many months down the track are we? We're eight so, months down the track. No, we're actually 12. So we bought on a really long settlement, actually. We bought in October. So, ah, there um, you go. Pretty much. So we did, we've only I been living here 12 months, but we've, we've actually, the moment we signed that contract, probably been about 12 months. So mm. um, technically, yes, it is 12 months. So, um. How are we feeling? So uh, I would like to say that, um, no, I wouldn't actually because I'm not really that type of person, but uh, it was a bit of luck. So COVID's been very good for where I purchased. So, yes, um, it, actually. Uh, and uh, I have got it on record that I did say that I thought the work from home movement would grow over time, um, but I was thinking 20 to 30 years, not a year. Um and so that has really set, you know, a bit of a hot, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, spark under the sort of peninsula. Yeah. Um, because the one and, thing and that sorry, we've discounted... Sorry, for those, those who haven't listened and aren't aware of where yeah. this port is up in the northern beaches, the upper northern yeah. beaches, the proper northern beaches. Upper's most point. That's the bends. <laughs> Yeah, oh, technically I'm just before the bends and that was um, because the bends was a psychological sort of bend, I guess, where people ah, okay. weren't willing to cross. Uh, and if I was going to say one of the things I was happy I did is probably did that. So we didn't buy 
and we also bought on a street, which was more luck, because even though we thought we knew the area, we didn't know the area. Um, so we were bought, we had been doing four months, five months of research um, into the area, but that was nowhere near enough. Like the things that we know about the area now than we knew f- after four or five months are completely different. Like I know the streets I would definitely not want to buy on now. I thought I did, but I, I actually know a lot better now. Um, fortunately, the street we bought on. Why? Like what, what is it about those streets that now that you live there, you know? Uh, there's, there's quite a few rat runs. There's another rat run that I didn't know. So um, we just, you know, you don't know these things till Google Maps sends you that way. And you're like, oh, actually, lots of people do this street. And so some of the houses we were looking on are actually quite busy rat runs. Uh, and we were just fortunate we mm. missed out on those. We just didn't know that people use it internally in the suburb use those. Um, some of the streets as well, like when you go and look at a property, I think you, you go and look at the property you want to buy, plus you probably look two or three houses left and right and maybe behind the house. You don't go and look at every house in the street. And there's some some streets within the suburb that have got a lot of love needed to increase the streetscape of the whole street. Mm. Um, and there's, it's going to take a lot of time for that street to really probably go next level. And then probably that street's going to underperform because people in that street are not going to want to live on that street because it still needs to gentrify. That makes sense? Yeah. There's some streets, though, that we weren't that that I would say now that if the property came up on those streets, I would be uh, so excited um, because they are without doubt the best streets. And I didn't even know they were the best streets. Um, and so if I was still looking and those streets came up, because I've got the knowledge now, I'd be like, wow, nothing comes up on this street. This is the best street in Bogola. I know it. Um, and I'd be much, ho- I'd just be a much better buyer because I would be like, yeah, I would be super on the agent. I'd be, you know, I'll probably using a buyer's agent anyway, I would be, but that's just knowledge. So there was like when we were looking very early on. There was, isn't it? That, and that's yeah. intimate local knowledge as well. That's because you literally live there and now you work there as well. <laughs> yeah, and we do walks around the suburb. And, like, you know, and we, I'm locking, thinking about this stuff all the time when I'm walking and, you know, doing cross-references and saying, well, that's a good mm. street, that's horrible, etc. There was one property came up on really early in our search and it was a cracker and I thought it was a cracker and I was like, we just weren't ready, we just weren't, like, ready like emotionally to commit um but also probably finance to be honest because it was in we needed the tax returns um and i was watching i was like oh i reckon this is the one that's got away i reckon this is going to be the one i wish we bought Mm. and i it's it was it was without doubt the property that was an absolute steal um and that property won't come up again Mm. um and it's probably in the best street in the best location and it went for a good price and i'm just going to watch that property because i'm going to see how that one performs compared to a lot of others because uh, you don't really know till it ever sells again, which could be a long time. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so those are the sort of things that I, I would say. Um, how do I really feel about it? Um, I mean, we did buy – we were very close to buying a house too small um, and we fell in love with the view and my wife talked me out of that. Uh, <laughs> and so she was – that was a very big win. We bought a, a bigger house and that was uh, – it's needed. And so that's – especially with the baby and all that sort of uh, work from home, et cetera. So – uh, we're super happy um, and I think, you know, we're not concerned about sort of uh, asset value and all that. So I think probably because we bought a house that we know we can grow into, um, whereas I think we were very close to buying things that we would have potentially been itchy and saying that we want to upgrade from here because it's not the greatest street, because it's not big enough, because it's um, something about it. And so I feel a bit relieved um, and 
the street I was a bit concerned about, um, and I did a bit of sort of research on it, and it has a bit of a bad rep a little bit. But fortunately, where we purchased in the street is probably the best best spot, um, and it's probably the most prestige part of the street. And that was probably more luck um, than actually good um, management. We had to make a re- we had to make we had to make a really quick di- decision on this property. We saw it on the Friday night. We made an offer on the Saturday morning, um, and it was it all happened well under twenty four hours. And I couldn't do obviously all your due diligence. Um, the other final thing I would say. Um, is there's apps on your phone that are called Sunseeker, and it's a great tip for anyone buying a property, um, is to download the app. And what it does is it shows how the sun moves over the year um, and because it doesn't just always stay in the same spot, mm-hmm. um, which you can easily think that it does. Um, and it goes a bit further south and a bit further north over winter. Um, and those Sunseeker apps do not take them as gospel uh, because if I look at what the Sunseeker app said where the sun would sunset, um, and where it does sunset, it's nowhere near sometimes. Uh, <laughs> and so don't fall, don't take the apps as gospel, but they give you a good idea of what's going to happen with the sun. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're very helpful. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, look, just as a, as a rule of thumb, I mean, it's like, you know, the sun rises in the east, it sets in the west, and it travels yeah. on the northern side, right? So this is why north aspect and northeast aspect are, are the, you know, the, the preferred aspects. Um but the sun is lower, so t- towards the horizon in winter, and higher up towards the you know the middle of the sky in summer. So that's the sort of basic mm. rule of thumb. And so that's when people are actually looking at houses when the agent says you know north facing. I was like, ah, let's just check what they mean by that because quite often they mean the front door is north facing, and that's not so fabulous. Only other variable to that is right. Um, so, yeah, east to west, lower north, and um, is it just goes further to the east and further to the west um, in summer over winter. And so if you're buying something, um, you think it's west facing. What, yeah, <laughs> and that does matter because, you know, if you're buying something, say, with a view or you know, you really want to capture, you might be catching Western sun, but you might be catching it at the worst time of the day and your house could be a heat box. Um, And uh, so that's definitely, you know, it's not always about getting it sort of thing. The sun, sometimes you wish you never got it. Um, And so, yeah, I think uh, answer your question or we're super happy. We're super happy with what we bought and there's definitely a big element of luck with COVID for us. Um, And I think um, fortunately we got um, the the business has been going for six years. We've had hundreds of clients and the last couple of years it's grown, you know, uh, even stronger. And, um, you know, we've got very little anxiety about really what any clients do. And so we haven't really, through COVID, had any clients freaking out, um, you know, where they're saying, oh, we really want to, we're worried about where things are going to go or et cetera like that because they've spent so much time really thinking through what they've done. And I'm hoping that you've done the same, you know. I'm hoping you've... You've really thought through what you purchased because from the sounds of it, you said you're feeling quite comfortable, whether that's um, with your work situation or whether that's just you know you bought a good investment um, because you know like things haven't, What when you sent this question back in maybe June or something, I don't know when you sent it, sorry, things were pretty scary, right? All the news, big falls in the property market. But if you read about some of the news today, uh, you know, all that's not happening, low rates, what the government's doing, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, you hope that you haven't had to stress unnecessarily. 
Now we've got our final question is from Jude Lamb. Now Jude's been a long time listener and um, in fact he sent us this really great video and I was just looking on our website to see if we put it on there. We should. His post-it note explanation of the, the Australian property market is just fantastic. Um, we'll find the link for the YouTube video actually. We'll definitely put in the links. Yeah, we'll put it in the, the show notes. So we, we love we love Jude's uh, take on the property market. He's got a fun question for all successful property investors and experts. <laughs> scenario there's been a tear in the space-time continuum you wake up in June 2020 which is obviously when you wrote this <laughs> we've been storing up this question for a few months with the body the nominal wage and savings of your 25 year old self but you do not own any property luckily you have all the knowledge you've gained from the past 25 years question median prices in Sydney and Melbourne went up about five times over the past 25 years. Experts like you probably did even better. Starting from scratch with your 25-year-old body, income and savings, but with all your current experience, how confident are you that from 20 to 2045, you would outperform your 90, 95 to 2020 returns? And I can start answering that because I have actually sat down and done a a little bit of an exercise on this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because it does actually, I bought my first property back in 1990. This is pretty much me actually, bang on. Um, 96, I think I bought my first property. Um, and and obviously I've owned, I actually haven't counted how many I've owned and sold and renovated and all that sort of stuff. I should probably sit down and do a bit of a tally. But I currently only own three. Um, you know, I've owned up to five at a time and um, I own three. I own my own home, which I sold a property to fund the renovation. And I had an investment property that I had bought and renovated and um, had a lot of equity in it. And the I was staring down the barrel. It had done all its job, right? And I was staring down the barrel of basically having to borrow, which I don't think the banks would lend it to me anyway, the amount of money I needed to renovate this house or sell that and actually get that equity out, and which is what I chose to do. So, But I can say that there's been a lot of mistakes I've made in property. Um, and so I bring the learning of all of those mistakes to my clients. So hopefully they don't make the same mistakes, but I'll, I'll run through just very quickly a couple of them, a few of them. One is that my first property was too small. It was way too small. I did not even look at how much I could have borrowed. I did not look at how much what I could have bought. I never actually did that exercise because I was fearful of the amount of debt and I was buying on my own. And so I bought a studio apartment and this is back in the days when you could and there wasn't a 50 square meter limit and it was a well-designed one and everything, but I only lived in it for a year. And then I met my, who became my husband, but he's no longer my husband. Um, and you know, within a, a year and, and we moved in together. And um, and so I rented that property out. And then when we bought our first home, our first house, obviously two incomes to go into that. And that was positively geared at that point of time. But because it was smaller than 50 square meters, I was forced to sell it. So it had done all right in terms of growth. It actually gave, me the, gave us a deposit for that house. So it did its job. But imagine if I had actually bought a or actually went through the exercise of finding out how much could I borrow, what else could I buy, can I buy a better asset that I didn't then have to sell, um, or perhaps we could have lived in together. You know, so that would have been a whole a lot of costs uh, wasted and opportunity cost in that. Um, I also, um, you know, sound I've, many times on this podcast I've explained the, the woes of my <laughs> my long relationships. <laughs> And um, so another relationship that was a long, long relationship that I ended some years back. And in that property settlement, I foolishly um, 
negotiated to keep a holiday home. And maybe now, post-COVID, it might have been a good idea. But, look, there were lots of reasons why that was foolish. It just <laughs> sent me down a whole world of pain. And, um, anyway, I ultimately sold that. Um, the house that I actually renovated and sold to actually fund this renovation, um, that was a that was really a B-grade property in a, in a good area. And the reason it was B-grade, and I made the um, – I. I didn't I was a sales agent at the time and I was overly positive about property overconfident <laughs> over positive right <laughs> and there were things about the immediate it was the best street it was one of the best house it's almost the worst house in the best street it was a really good street but what was next to my house was the worst house I didn't buy the worst house the house next to me was the worst house and that was a real issue yeah it was a real issue so yeah. and also when I renovated that because I did sell another property and I funded the renovation out of cash from the sale of that other property which was my first house that I bought that was the dumbest thing to do when I was investing you know I should not I should have set up an offset account I should have actually borrowed the money etc cetera, etc cetera. so there were lots of I didn't get a good accounting advice then so if I had actually and I wrapped all this up and I worked out that it probably means a difference of around about a million dollars now so there you go that's mm. I think that answers Jude's question <laughs> I think there's a lot there um one back to that last question you had about things that um I didn't know about the thing that we the property we purchased um, when you say about neighbour, it just sort of, you know, made me think. Uh, we that, When we first checked the property out, there was a border collie next door that um, was barking. And I'm like, oh, you know, we love dogs. I'm a massive animal fan. Um, and we'll have a dog by itself very soon when the baby's safe. But anyway, um, he's got three border collies, and I hope he never listens to this. But <laughs> the reality is these these dogs are unloved, and they need walking, and they need, um, you know, love. And they, unfortunately, when they leave home, he's, a, you know, likes to work. Uh, he leaves at 6 a.m. and then the dogs go. Um, and so one of the things you just you just don't know, right? Like I just thought this dog is a bit nervous because you see someone new in the backyard, but the, that dog is a serial barker. Um, and so these are some of the things that you just, you got to always be careful. And the neighbour thing, I think, Veronica, is, I think when I, when I heard you tell that story the first time, I was like, yeah, you can really see how, just one property can really affect you. You've done everything right. And then the neighbors, such a big impact on the returns. And it's just one of these things you just don't know. You just, she'll be right, mate, um, et cetera. The key to, I think, Jude's question, um, and shout out to Jude, good bloke, <laughs> um, is uh, that, you know, what you're trying to say is that is the returns of property going to be five times what they were between 1995 and 2020? I don't think and so. I, say, I think he's asking about the decisions you make. And does that lead to? Ah. That's what he's asking. So it's not about. He's oh, not I think to- this. Oh, okay. Well, I think. Um, well, yeah, I think he's what he's saying. Well, I think he's. Well, <laughs> I could be wrong. We probably should ask Jude the question direct. I think <laughs> he's saying though is even if you've got the knowledge you've got over the next twenty five years, do you think your returns are going to be better than what you have over the last twenty five oh, years? Okay, and, fair call. That could be. Yeah, and I would say that. Uh, no, I don't think that you're going to see the capital growth across the whole market that you have seen over the last 25 years. There's things that have, you know, macro sort of tectonic sort of shifts that force price, prices of properties to go up that much, right? The amount of money that people could borrow as a percentage of income in 1995 versus 2020 is completely different. Uh, interest rates are completely different. 
um, you know, populate all these sort of factors well, that are driven. Uh, one income, <laughs> yeah, lot lower. So yeah, that's true, but um, that's been a, that's that's pushed prices up. So it's allowed as prices. This is the key thing with interest rates dropping. Every time they drop, it increases house prices. And this is one thing that we're going to figure out over the next couple of years. And this is not to say that I, I think the market's going to go crazy, but with interest rates potentially going to go under 2% and likely to stay there because of something like COVID, forcing everyone in the world to take on a lot of debt and slow down growth, um, that is going to potentially have a huge impact on the market. And so there's lots of things that I would say that aren't going to happen again, um, especially when interest rates are at 2%. They can't go to... 0.2 percent um really the bank's got to make profit so there's a, there's um, a couple i would of say the returns though, like you, and you've mentioned this a number of times that you know back in 1995 there'd be a lot more single single income households yes. and now there's a lot more double income but also i think the affordability and or unaffordability as we, we might say in say sydney and melbourne that has actually pushed that does limit it, it basically means that prices are less elastic you know, because there's just there's yep. a reduced amount of people that are able to push prices up. Yeah, hundred percent. And then the mental accounting that like what's driven up property prices as well is, you know, you made the profits on one property and then you reinvested those properties profits and said so the transactions and taking on more debt, etc. So no, I don't think returns are going to be anything like they have in the last twenty five years. And I always laugh when I see those people who you know say, well, probably million dollar property today is going to be five million dollars in you know, twenty five years time. Um, you know, I just don't think it's realistic. And I think it's, um, you know, especially if you're banking on that type of return, you say, oh, I don't need to worry about my income or savings because my property portfolio is going to do it for me, et cetera. So, but I don't think that means that property isn't going to go up as a, at a macro level, but then also within that, some properties are going to really perform really well over that 25 years. That's the and the big thing. And the big thing I think what's happening is, uh, I think COVID's been a really big shift to something that I didn't think was going to happen. And we've seen a lot of changes in buyer preferences and where clients are buying. And that I think is the thing that we, is a piece of knowledge that we no one had. I think now you've got to factor it into your decisions because I do think it's going to create a bit more of a two tier market where the quality assets, even in the inner ring and also in areas that are lifestyle are going to outperform the things that are potentially compromised. And so the A-grade stuff and the A-grade locations, the things that really tick all the boxes for the buyer mm. uh, are going to outperform things that um, are compromised because I think people just bought the suburb before because they wanted to save on commute and they wanted just to say they're in that suburb because they wanted to have time with their family. But now those things have shifted. So um, I think that's a key piece of knowledge that, um, yeah, you've got to now factor in. So I think that leads perfectly to our Dumbo of the Week segment. I think we've got one each today. <laughs> I'm going to hit you. There's a few, actually, there's, we've touched on, you know, potentially within all of that, some Dumbos, but um, I've, I've got a bit of a Dumbo and this is somebody. Let's was, go with yours. Somebody, well, you can give us one too. Somebody was talking to me recently. They're also in their 20s and they're very proud of themselves. They, they and, and this is actually a bit of a tragedy. They'd engaged a buyer's agent to help them buy their first property and they'd be doing lots of research, listening to this podcast, listening to other podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. They engage a buyer's agent that actually, you know, I, this actually really does pain me, but a buyer's agent that helped them buy a brand new property in outer, the outskirts of Brisbane. And mm. oh, look, a serious, and I look, I didn't even get, I didn't sort of, um, I didn't, 
fully understand whether it was a local buyer's agent because I because most of the local Brisbane buyer's agents that I know would go, no, we would never buy that sort of stock. It, it tends yeah. to be an out-of-area buyer's agent. So somebody from Brisbane, sorry, somebody from Sydney or Melbourne often that's sitting doing numbers and doing deals with developers. So this person is so excited that they've gone and got advice. They think they've actually done the right thing by getting a buyer's agent and then this buyer's agent has actually bought them something that has no scarcity, uh, is, you know, just not in a growth area. Um, and, I, you know, my heart breaks actually. It's, it's a dumbo because... You know, it's one of those things we learn from. Let's face it, we want, we talk about these stories because we want people to learn from them. But this person has been very misguided. They've been doing all their research, and then but they've still outsourced the responsibility to a buyer's agent. But and that's the pain of it is that they've actually paid somebody to actually help them make yeah. this diabolically bad decision for their first property or for any property, but particularly for their first property. And I, it's just that's a sad dumbo. But hopefully, people can yeah. learn that they need to. Look at a buyer's agent that can give them local knowledge, local understanding, uh, not sit down there and spruik, you know, the sort of data that can sound yeah. very compelling but actually is not uh, not good, not good information. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, we, yeah, we've seen that between the last couple of weeks as well. Uh, a client was referred me his best mate, actually, wedding sort of, uh, you know, best man sort of thing, right? And uh, he said, look, I think you need to really help my mate. He's gone to, uh, he's an expat, lives overseas, gone to a financial planner. He's referred him to a independent financial advisor. Uh, independent, like, you know, no mate, you're not independent. Um, and he has referred him on to a spruiker basically, and they're going to buy something new in Brisbane. Mm. And, um, the, and I, I spoke to the chap and um, he basically told me the whole pitch, the, the Brisbane's going to boom. Sydney's overshot. Um, you know, this area is, you know, and I saw the development and et cetera. Um, and fortunately he stopped. Um, he's engaged a buyer's agent. He's going to be still going to go on Brisbane, but anyway, that's the long story. He's going to buy a better asset. So that to me was a, a really saved that sort of situation. Um, so I do see that a lot. And I think um, the reality is, and this is not a shot at buyer's agents, Veronica at all, because I'm a massive fan mm. But every industry, whether you're going for a plumber or a hairdresser, has people who are great, um, who are sensational. It's their life work. It's their calling. They've invested every moment of their energy over the last five or ten years to become an expert at what they do. And they've also got a higher level of ethics. Um, and Because you can be an expert, but you can also have no ethics. And so there's those buyers agents out there, and there is those sort of people. There's not that many, to be frank. And then you've got the other riffraff and that's in every industry and that's not a shot at buyer's agent. And so just picking a buyer's agent, um, you've got to be super selective and super careful who you work with because unfortunately it's an extremely low barrier to entry that maybe is a little bit higher, but for me it's still too low. Um, and um, ethics isn't rife, I would say. Uh, and yeah. unfortunately, because it's a hard job, it's not an easy, it's much harder than I think the mortgage broking um, because the quality, the, what you're trying to do is, make something that is actually potentially unachievable, achievable through hard work and calling and finding and searching and negotiation and saying no and it's hard work to be great. And so I would say that's something that I see quite often. 
Yeah, it's really sad actually and, you know, I'm a proud real estate agent. However, I'm not proud of the behaviour of most real estate agents, whether they be buyer's agents or sales agents, but there's a lot in the industry that are passionate about making sure people get good advice, good guidance, and it's very difficult to for the layperson to understand the difference between a pitch when they're being sold to um, and actually when they're being guided and educated so that they make a really good decision with their eyes wide open. And it's a real, it's one of the reasons we created Home Buyer Academy, you know, Megan Wells and I. Yeah. Um, because particularly for first home buyers because it's just it's fraught out there and there's just so many vested interests and so many people that love property that have got into into the industry and they don't know enough even a lot of these buyers agents that have got you know very got into the industry easily that they don't know enough to be critical about what they're being told by various developers and the rest of it so it, it's a it's blind leading the blind in many cases so you know, maybe we need to get a little register, <laughs> a register of those you can trust. It's also becoming a savvy consumer. Mm. So it's, you know, you need to be taking personal responsibility here that it's your responsibility who you choose. You can't blame the person. You can't walk into McDonald's and say, oh, that burger was not good for my health um, and <laughs> blame true. McDonald's. Very just, true. You should, just, should not have walked into McDonald's. Um, the reality is you should have known that was not good for your health. And it's also the questions you ask. And just refreshing. And whenever I talk about clients, I just want to be very clear on the podcast if you've been listening. It's always obviously anonymous. But what we're trying to take is learnings out of those mm. that are not ever down to one person. It's not a shut with them. Hindsight's easy. They're just basing on the information on what they knew at that time. Everyone wants to do the right thing for themselves. No one wants to stitch themselves up, right? Um, but <laughs> a client was asking me questions, um, and the questions she was asking me, I had to stop and say, the problem you're getting here is you're asking the wrong questions because I could tell you those answers to those questions, but they wouldn't be true or they'll be lies and I'd be selling to you. Mm. And I said, what happened in your situation five years ago or whatever it was, she's bought two properties and the, what she's basically asked is where's the next growth sort of hotspot? What's a great place to invest with $500,000? And the reality is if you ask that question to the wrong person in the property market, yep. they will sell to you yep. and they will tell you the dream and it's easy to do it. And, um, and I'm going to stop you and don't ever ask that question because the problem is that's not that's the wrong. You've got to go back to the start. Where do you want to go? What's your goals? What are you trying to achieve? What have you currently got? How does the market work? How much borrowing capacity? How are your income's going to change? There's so many other questions we need to figure out before just telling you about where to invest. And yeah. so that's, I think, the problem here is you've got to ask the questions and know what to ask rather than, um, yeah, basically asked to be sold to. Uh, it's so true. Look, I mean, I'm a, I'm a bit of a crusade. I really do want to help people make better decisions. However, the more people I talk to, um, you know, in, in my business, for instance, it, the sort of the person that is our ideal client is, is a smart, successful person who recognises that this is a really important decision and they need good guidance um, and that they don't know it all themselves, right? But I still get people yeah. coming to me that know it all and or they get frustrated because it's not neatly packaged with a bow on it, you know? It's complicated and we do need to to understand them and their motivations and, and we also need to educate them onto the market and the market possibilities and the 
risks and all the rest of it. And some people are impatient. They don't want to know about that. They want the quick rich. They want the quick, quick and easy answer. And I've sort of got this sort of this analogy. It's like, okay, I've got two bowls in my hand, one in each hand. One has got a plate of lovely steamed broccoli. And I've even potentially toasted some almonds and popped that on top and a little bit of fresh cracked pepper and salt. You know, there it is. It's really healthy. It's tasty and all the rest of it. And the other hand, I've actually got what looks like a scoop of ice cream, chocolate ice cream. What it really is is dog turd wrapped in chocolate, right? And I tell you what, there are people that even if you say to them, it's dog turd on the inside because it looks like chocolate ice cream it smells like chocolate ice cream and when i'm offering you the alternative which is steaming broccoli with a little bit of the almonds on top they're gonna go for the bowl of dog turd covered in chocolate and it's like the amount of people i know that that in my experience it's like this analogy it's like you you're kidding me you're gonna take the dog turd covered in chocolate yep i am i really want the chocolate <laughs> on the inside i want the chocolate <laughs> so it's a, it's actually leads into my Dumbo, to be honest. Um, and the Dumbo is, is that exactly that. So when it's, when someone's giving you great advice and this isn't blowing our own trumpet at all, but when someone, you go to someone for professional advice and you go for them to help you when they actually give you great advice and it's not validating what you want to do. Um, and they explain things to you and it makes you feel uncomfortable and it challenges your thinking. And it makes you, um, yeah, ultimately make a better decision. It means you've got to go and do more research and homework and think about big questions. Um, don't think it's all too hard and then just go in your situation and have that bowl of uh, ice cream, which, you know, et cetera. So <laughs> really when you're getting advice is really take on and, and try to let the, because your emotions kick off. We get lots of clients, um, you know, just recently we found that, you know, they want to be validated and they want to just go on the path that they're going. And the problem is, especially if someone hasn't got, um, you know, we've got no sort of bias to the property. That it, as a broker, we don't really care what someone buys, really. If, if you were breaking it down, a mortgage broker shouldn't care because from a financial point of view because the loan really doesn't, isn't mm. determined by the type of property you purchase. Yep. And unfortunately, a lot of buyers agents can fall for that as well because oh, yeah. they're like, well, yeah, and so... Uh, yeah, there's no incentive for us to make sure clients buy great properties, really. If we just wanted to, it actually complicates our process. It actually makes it, usually sometimes takes it longer because oh. they've got to be more patient. Talk about, um, that is the very and, thing that stops me scaling my business. Can't scale it because if I did, yeah. I'd have to start buying shit. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I think that's the thing that I just say, you know, is really is, you know, if things are feeling a little bit uncomfortable, it's not always a bad thing. It's actually potentially someone um, saying things that you don't want to hear but they could be the, and it's like feedback. Uh, you know, sometimes we're, you know, we all get feedback that we don't like, but it's actually for our benefit. And I'd say that that's probably um, it's how to think personal about experience there, Chris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a professional media person, but uh, I'm trying my best for, for all you listeners. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> it's quite funny. But uh, yeah, hopefully that helps, you know, people who are, you know, going to get advice, you always got to be careful about advice, but don't always think, oh, they've got my, haven't got my interests at heart. And if it is good advice and it makes you feel uncomfortable, do more digging, start figuring it out, ask more questions, and hopefully you'll get over that hurdle and then you'll get on the right direction. Um, so that's probably my dumbo there is not knowing good advice when it hits you in the face. <laughs> 
please join us for our next episode. We're doing a bit of a Brisbane expose. There's been quite a lot of interest in the Brisbane property market and we want to understand, I guess, where the out-of-towners can be getting it wrong, the sorts of property that has upward pressure on prices and also investment fundamentals and what's happening with vacancy rates on the property management side of things in Brisbane. We're joined by Megan Wells, buyer's agent and my partner in Home Buyer Academy and we have some excellent insights on Brisbane for you next episode. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.